0: Da 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 la ya da da
1: Welcome to Wild Trekker. I'm George Toombs here in Montreal, and this is the 26th episode. Wild Trekker is a series of podcasts, a writer's notebook, audio chapters from ongoing works, soundscapes, adventures, interviews with fascinating people, reflections, original radio plays, reportage, stories behind stories, jam sessions, and more. Wild Trekker is a fluid kind of sound art. I hope you enjoy it. Wired into memories of our lives and of our place in the world is a half repressed desire to get back to a new beginning to a time of pure potential, innocence and becoming, a time without suffering or consequences or catastrophe, a time of opening horizons without tragedy. In the Bible, this mythical beginning is located in the Garden of Eden, but it's already a flawed beginning because Adam and Eve commit the first sin and are banished forever from Eden so the time of pure potential innocence and becoming hasn't lasted very long the story of adam and eve is a highly moral one they've not obeyed god's commandments they've eaten of the forbidden tree of knowledge of good and evil and they are expelled from eden for having committed the sin of pride Even though our Western society has become highly secularized over the last four or five centuries, the myth of Eden, and by myth I don't mean fable so much as founding symbolic story, is very much with us, and it's bound up with the tension between religion and science. I would even say that Eden has sometimes been swept up into thinking about science. I would like to explore the origins and development of a powerful modern myth of a new beginning that a technological Eden will come into being through the concerted efforts of a community of scientific technocrats whose rigorous application of scientific knowledge will definitively resolve the problems of humanity in the future. The myth of this new beginning, a technological Eden, is supported by the idea of a benevolent, technically-minded intellectual elite, embodying some of the same values as the philosopher king of Plato's Republic, or again of King Solamona of Francis Bacon's 17th century work, The New Atlantis. Unlike Adam and Eve in the original Eden, who were punished by God for seeking to know too much. This technically minded elite is solely occupied with boldly pushing back the frontiers of knowledge. In fact, the expert elite directs its systematic knowledge of techniques for making and doing things to the scientific reorganization of society and the resolution of the fundamental problems of survival which have long faced the planet. In so doing, this elite gains a huge power over society But scientific authors don't really worry about that because the expert elite always acts in the better interests of humanity. I'm speaking of a modern myth which developed since Francis Bacon's time, although I'm not sure Bacon would have recognized it. Technical knowledge and natural philosophy are no longer as separate as they were in antiquity, when the privileged few speculated about science at their leisure. On the contrary, at least since the time of H.G. Wells, technique is now harmonized with and even wedded to science. The Protestant theologian Rudolf Bultmann sought to demythologize religion, so I'm not trying to re-mythologize science, which only definitively emerged from magic in early modern times. Rather, I would like to identify intellectual structures, patterns of thought, and mythical imagery which were borrowed or inherited from other sources, and particularly from revealed religion. And in so doing, I want to better understand how the transcendental view of the secular future developed, along with the consecration of science and its handmade technology as a religion in its own right. Believers in this modern myth of a new beginning consciously turned away from the old certainties and security of revealed religion but the very way in which they exalted science and technology suggests that they had elevated science to the status of a new religion and since the religious impulse was involved it's hardly surprising that several great myths of the judeo-christian religion even though secularized were integrated into the myth of a technological eden The myth of biblical time, moving forward from a past through a present to a culminating point in the future. The myth of earthly paradise, in that the new technological Eden constitutes a haven of luxury and comfort, free from want and fear. And third, the myth of the apocalypse, not so much from the perspective of the fiery destruction of the planet, as from the knowledge-based perspective of the covenants, the ages which succeed one another throughout history, ever pointing to a better future, in which the blessed, the technically-minded elite, that is, recover some of the innocence of paradise. What makes the fundamental ambiguity of science and technology all the more troubling is that scientism elevated science to the exalted status of a religion, situating its apocalyptic promise in the future, and in so doing, it blinded an important portion of humanity. Science, from their perspective, took on a transcendent religious quality. The technological Eden still has the prestige and staying power of a quasi-religious myth promising to launch humanity into a glorious future of fulfillment and emancipation from false gods. The glorious golden future, if it is not yet arrived, will one day arrive. Perhaps this explains why, in the interim, so many concrete problems and consequences in our world are being ignored, and why the stubborn believers in a technological Eden still long for their redemption. Now, if science is understood as man's systematic and free pursuit of knowledge about nature, then the rift between religion and science was evident as early as the book of Genesis. Remember that the Lord God commanded Adam saying, "'You may eat freely of every tree of the garden of Eden, "'but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, "'you shall not eat, "'for in the day that you eat of it, you will die.'" According to Genesis, those who ate of the tree gained the power to know, to penetrate, to experience good and evil for themselves, thus becoming like God. According to this account, man fell from a state of grace, was expelled from the Garden of Eden, became imperfect and mortal by yielding to the temptation to know as much as God which amounts to saying that man was perfect as long as he accepted his own limits and didn't seek to penetrate divine mysteries. Suffice it to say that the scriptures of Judaism and Christianity frequently affirmed the ambivalence and indeed the dangers of human knowledge. One has only to think of Paul's warning to the Colossians. See to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. Long after Genesis was written down, but prior to the advent of Christianity, there was an alternative, atheist view in antiquity which stood completely outside of the context of Jewish monotheism. Lucretius in the first century BC, an early philosopher of nature, sought to explain the main principles of the atomic universe, the atomic structure and mortality of the soul, the nature of sense perception, the creation of the world, and natural phenomena such as thunder and lightning, while consciously denying any possibility of divine intervention. In On the Nature of the Universe, Lucretius wrote, Our world has been made by nature through the spontaneous and casual collision and the multifarious, accidental, random, and purposeless congregation and coalescence of atoms, whose suddenly formed combinations could serve on occasion as the starting point of substantial fabrics, earth and sea and sky, and the races of living creatures. Religio, he presented, as a hideous monster crushed underfoot by the courageous and liberating force of Epicurean science, whose victory lifts humanity to the skies. Indeed, Lucretius denied that the holy dwelling places of the gods are anywhere within the limits of the world for the flimsy nature of the gods, far removed from our senses, is scarcely visible even to the perception of the mind, since it eludes the touch and pressure of our hands, it can have no contact with anything that is tangible to us, for what cannot be touched cannot touch. Now it should be noted that Lucretius did not consecrate science as a new religion, rather He clearly mapped out the difference between science and religion and validated empirical explanations of natural phenomena downplaying any possibility of divine intervention as mere fable. Origen, an early father of the church in the third century AD, established a completely different framework for understanding the relationship between faith and reason. He didn't do so in order to articulate a new role for scientific knowledge, but rather to confront heresy, to discredit Jewish objections to Christianity, and to buttress Christian orthodoxy with rationality as it was then understood. It's interesting to note that Origen, writing well before the doctrine of the Trinity had been established, allowed each individual Christian, as long as he adhered to the faith passed down by the apostles, a good deal of speculative latitude within the bounds of that faith. I mention Origen here because some of his thinking is central. It is necessary, Origen wrote in First Principles, to discuss the manner in which the divine scriptures are to be read and understood since many mistakes have been made in consequence of the method by which the holy documents ought to be interpreted not having been discovered by the multitude for the hard-hearted and ignorant members of the circumcision that is the Jews have refused to believe in our Savior because they think that they are keeping closely to the language of the prophecies that relate to him and they see that he did not literally proclaim release to captives or build what they considered to be a real city of God or cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem or eat butter and honey and choose the good before he knew or preferred the evil. According to Origen, scripture has a three-part nature body soul and spirit just as men do. At a first level of understanding the body of Scripture is its literal meaning at a second level of understanding the soul of Scripture is its moral meaning at a third level of understanding the spirit of Scripture is the spiritual or allegorical meaning as Henry Bettinson has written Origen is mainly concerned with the allegorical method revealing the hidden spiritual meaning the device whereby difficulties and inconsistencies of the scriptures and even what are, from a Christian standpoint, the immoralities can be harmonized with the faith. Origen is said to have castrated himself in order to feel more comfortable working with young women catechumens. This self-mortification with a blade suggests that he took some of Paul far too seriously. But Origen's distinction was convenient for the church. It meant that there was no single way to interpret the scriptures. The church could always focus on the most convincing meaning at any given moment, whether that meaning be literal, moral, or allegorical. The evident contradictions and obscurities of the Bible could be contextualized, rationalized, cast aside. Given that the word of God was always true in at least one of the three ways Origen identified, then the believer was allowed a certain latitude in his questioning of the scriptures as long as he focused on the one true meaning. But this approach to interpretation opened up a difficulty. There was little point basing religious doctrines solely on morals or allegory if those doctrines, meanwhile, flatly contradicted the dictates of reason itself. Thus, Christian doctrines concerning nature were inherently weak whenever they were based on a strictly literal reading of allegorical passages in the scriptures. As I mentioned a little while ago, an early expression of the modern myth of a technological Eden is that of Francis Bacon, who lived from 1561 to 1626. In the New Atlantis, Bacon imagines an ideal society devoted to the collective enterprise of science. The end of our foundation, he writes, is the knowledge of causes and secret motions of things, and the enlarging of the bounds of human empire to the effecting of all things possible. For Bacon, human knowledge is based on observation of nature, and science is turned to the task of perfecting the machine in order to support the methodical conquest of nature. This modern myth of a technological Eden, which is partly traceable to Bacon, sometimes consisted in treating science morally and allegorically as a new religion in considerably exaggerating the role of the natural philosopher or scientist and in projecting into an idealized future certain age-old wishes for peace, fulfillment, and freedom from both want and suffering. Reconciling the discoveries of science with revealed religion was in the 17th century a huge dilemma for scientists who were also Christian believers. Several leading scientific thinkers were caught up in this dilemma We may here cite four approaches to the rift between science and revealed religion, since they're all indicative of a common struggle. Bacon insisted that it was wrong to wish to harmonize religion and science in every respect, since natural philosophy would end up teaching us about God's power in any case. Galileo claimed that an empirically demonstrated scientific hypothesis was literally true, Descartes suspended belief, including religious belief, until rigorous self-questioning, based on carefully laid out rules of rationality, could establish its validity, and Pascal tightly circumscribed reason itself, thus removing religion from the purview of rationality altogether. Francis Bacon saw philosophy as a great tree consisting of 3 branches: the knowledge of God, of nature, and of man. As if to emphasize the separate but complementary character of each of these branches of knowledge, Bacon includes a scientist's prayer early on in the great instoration. A scientist's prayer, very interesting. This Likewise, I humbly pray, Bacon writes, that things human may not interfere with things divine and that from the opening of the ways of sense and the increase of natural light there may arise in our minds no incredulity or darkness with regard to the divine mysteries. It's a scientist's prayer after all. Indeed, Bacon considers that natural philosophy is after the word of God, the surest medicine against superstition and the most approved nourishment for faith. Whereas natural philosophy consisted of knowledge about God's power, faith was grounded in knowledge about God's wisdom. Bacon also draws an analogy between the work of science of establishing true axioms in the light of experience with the first day of creation during which God created light only. Bacon cautions, however, that a system of natural philosophy cannot be based on the first book of Genesis, since from this unwholesome mixture of things human and divine there arises not only a fantastic philosophy but also a heretical religion. Very meat it is, therefore, that we be sober-minded and give to faith, that only which is faiths. So, I see in this writing of Bacon's already an implicit migration of values and beliefs from biblical traditions to early modern science. speaking of the rift or conflict or competition between science and revealed religion, I'm not referring to those thinkers from Plato to Aristotle and up to Spinoza who believed in a philosophical god. The succession of early modern scientific discoveries sets up a new standard of intellectual authority, not faith, the revelation of the canonical scriptures or accepted practice within the church, whether Catholic or Protestant, but the systematic exploration and justification of scientific hypotheses, their elevation into natural laws, and their application by means of technology. Whereas previously, it seemed the heart had embraced the tenets of transcendent faith at an intuitive level, sometimes consciously suspending reason altogether in order to embrace the spiritual account of the world the way Pascal had done, now the scientific mind assents rationally to demonstrable and justifiable truth and often responds with enthusiasm to the latest mechanical inventions. Some 19th century scientific thinkers used the intellectual structures of religion to overthrow the old religion and attempt to create a new religion of reason in its place. In the mid-nineteenth century, for example, the social positivism of Auguste Comte posited a law of three phases of intellectual development, the first stage of which was theological, the second metaphysical, and the third scientific or positive. According to Comte, mankind attained to fullness only by abandoning the first two phases and replacing them with a third a rigorous commitment to the scientific method. In this three-phase image of historical development, one detects a movement of progress, from worse to better, from disappointment to promise, from ignorance to knowledge, from obscurantism to enlightenment, from bestiality to civilization, from chaos to science. Kant writes, positivists then may more truly than theological believers Of whatever creed regard life as a continuous and earnest act of worship worship which will elevate and purify our feelings enlarge and enlighten our thoughts ennoble and invigorate our actions thus positivism becomes in the true sense of the word a religion the only religion which is real and complete destined therefore to replace all imperfect and provisional systems resting on the primitive basis of theology. positivist was a high priest of order and progress. And this high priest was hard at work bringing about an industrial society organized on the rational principles of the new religion of humanity. All the points then, he writes, in which the morality of positive science excels the morality of revealed religion are summed up in the substitution of love of humanity for love of God. Science, therefore, poetry and morality will alike be regenerated by the new religion and will ultimately form one harmonious whole on which the destinies of man will henceforth rest. science into a rational religion was made by Comte's student Ernest Renan, author of L'Avenir de la Science, or The Future of Science. This latter book is a monument of 19th century scientism. Renan, a distinguished historian and philologist, wrote it in the 1840s, only to fling it into the drawer, submitting it for publication in 1890, shortly before his death. The book bears signs of youthful self-indulgence and gushing optimism. Perhaps more importantly, it was written at the time of the February Revolution of 1848, which built up huge expectations in France about science, reason, and the future. Renan was an ambiguous person who brought together two very different natures. On the one hand, a cool intellectual taste for critical rationalism, and on the other, messianic expectations and passionate apocalyptic visions. In L'Avenir de la Science, Renan makes enormous claims for science. For heaven's sake, he writes, grant me that science alone can provide man with vital truths, without which life would be intolerable and society impossible. If we imagined that these truths were derived from the patient study of things, then the higher form of science would no longer have any meaning. There would be erudition vain curiosity but not science in the noblest sense of the word But it's not enough for Renan to consider science as the noble pursuit of vital truths. Science, he believes, aims at the scientific organization of humanity and is about to embark on a new mission. I will go still further, he writes. The universal mission of every living being is to make God perfect, that is, to bring about the definitive resolution which will unify and close the circle of things up till now reason doubtless had no part in this mission which was instead fulfilled in a blind and unknowing way by everything that is but I say that reason will one day take on this mission and having organized humanity will then organize God It's interesting to note, in Renan's case, that this millenarian shift from faith to reason is not all lightness and joy. Like a huge shock wave, it's been building up for some time, at least since the Reformation, and arguably since the time of Lucretius. Like a wave it hammers Renan, rocking his old certainties to their foundations, washing away conventions of times past raising countless unanswerable and often disturbing questions renan accepts that the answers provided by reason are in some ways unsatisfying for one thing they seem ephemeral since they're likely to be replaced by yet other answers a certain ambivalence can be detected in l'avenir de la science since renan now publicly assents to rationality while longing secretly for the impossible return of the older sense of wonder who has not cursed the day he writes that he was born and regretted the loss of illusions once he'd given himself up to science for my part i admit i've had a lot of regrets yes some days i would have preferred a state of blissful innocence i would have been annoyed by criticism and rationalism. What science offers me is not enough. I'm still hungry. I admit that if I believed religion, my faith would provide me with more sustenance, but it's better to have a little good science than lots of shaky science. During the current pandemic, it may be hard to picture this glorious golden myth of a technological Eden, but once the pandemic is finally over, and I hope that day comes soon, I believe the myth of a technological Eden is so compelling that it will come running back with a vengeance. And by the way, during this Wild Trekker podcast, I'm speaking of the rift or conflict or competition between science and revealed religion. I'm not referring to those thinkers from Plato to Aristotle, the Stoics, and up to Spinoza, who believed in a philosophical God. And I've been referring to science as a kind of secular religion, not to science as a vast, public, self-correcting body of knowledge and that actually is the kind of science I'm interested in. If you would like to know more about my ongoing creative works from books, translations, films, and blogs to Wild Tracker, check out my author's website at www.evidencia.net and evidencia is spelled E V I D E N as in November T I A. evidencia.net. The opening theme at the beginning of each Wild Tracker podcast is sung by Marie Frenette with me accompanying her on the piano. Now here's Marie Frenette singing the closing theme of Wild Tracker, accompanied by Pascal Desmeaux on the guitar. Let's get together soon. This Wild Tracker episode is copyright 2021, George Toombs, all rights reserved.